We are continuing our evening sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, finishing up chapter 5. In the Pew Bible, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, follow along there, please. That's page 401. Four hundred and one. Nehemiah chapter five, beginning in verse fourteen through the end of the chapter, sermon titled The Good Governor. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, All that I have done for this people. As far as the reading of God's word. If you can remember back to last time, uh, we looked at a a humanitarian crisis that was unfolding in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem. And uh, that crisis now gives Nehemiah the opportunity to give an overview of his a stint as governor with the people, a leader in Jerusalem. But in fact, this is the first time we're told that he's not just any leader. Specifically, he's a governor. Now notice he's not elected governor, but he's appointed. Verse 14, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor. Uh, That is, this is actually a position of delegated authority that he was given by the Persian king Artaxerxes. Um, This is not the first time we learn of um, the um, uh, captive power delegating uh, somebody to a particular region and giving them the title governor. Uh, Jeremiah 40 talks about the king of Babylon had appointed Gedalia, um I probably mispronounced that, Gedalia, there we go, uh, the son of a Hakim governor in the land. So the king of Babylon had appointed a governor. Similarly, we learn of Shashbazar, who was appointed governor by Cyrus. So Nehemiah is the governor appointed by Artaxerxes. And what we don't know is that back in chapter 1, um, I guess chapter 2, when he asks, he, he makes the, his case that the walls are burned down in Jerusalem and the king has favor upon him and sends him. We're not sure if in sending him, does he send him as a governor right then? Or does he send him as somebody who's going to rebuild the walls, reform the people? And when the king, Persian king, hears how good of a job Nehemiah is doing, that he, he promotes him. And maybe he becomes governor later on. We're not sure. What we do know, though, is he held this title for 12 years. 
Though at one time a captive cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah now has become responsible for a significant portion of land and people in the Persian Empire. So we see how in God's mysterious providence, his people, God's people, have received a leader who fears the Lord sent by them, sent to them by a pagan king who could care less about Yahweh. And in this act of kindness, God, uh, in this act of kindness of, of sending this leader, we have one who loves the Lord, who seeks the people's welfare and not his own advancement. And in that, God not only provided for the people of his day, but he also pointed the people of that day to another day and to another leader, a better leader, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see. Nehemiah is the good governor of Jerusalem, who in this chapter wonderfully points us to the governor of our souls, Jesus Christ. And so I want us to consider first, though, this evening, Nehemiah's leadership. And there are three components of it that are highlighted in the first few verses that that show us why it's so um, significant. First, we could say it was generous. His leadership was generous. Uh, Maybe some of your Bibles provide little uh, headings, maybe in italics off to the side or above the paragraphs to kind of let you know what's going to take place in, in the ESV, at least in my copy. Nehemiah's generosity is the title of verses 14 through 19, um, cluing us to the fact that this is a major theme of the epistle, that he's generous. And it's certainly in direct contrast with what we read last time in the beginning of chapter 5, where the Israelites are exploiting one another and they're Um, They're committing usury. They're exacting exorbitant interest on each other. But in contrast, Nehemiah says throughout the entirety of his 12-year term as governor, he never or he proved himself continually as as a gentle and generous governor in that he never did one thing in particular is mentioned. He never took the food allowance of the governor. And so what that means is that the governor under Persian policy, had the right to exact from the people money, taxes, not only those which would go back home to the the capital Susa in Babylon, Persia, but also he could uh, exact taxes in the form of money, food, property that he could keep for himself to make sure he had a, a, a luxurious, comfortable lifestyle. But Nehemiah never once used that right. And it was a right. According to the Persian government, this is something he had the right to do. But Nehemiah never once used this right. He did not view himself on a different plane or a higher plane than the people. He lived with them. He lived among them as one of them suffering and scraping by just as they were. The, the governor could have made hard times harder, yet under Nehemiah's leadership, he alleviated the suffering of the people because he was generous. And his actions were later mimicked by the Apostle Paul. Maybe you remember some of the stuff that Paul says to the Corinthians in his letters to them uh, about his unwillingness to demand that they pay him for his and the other apostles' ministry to them. And the reason he doesn't want to do that is because they are in a time of financial difficulty. And so we read in 2 Corinthians eleven nine: When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, 
For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. The Philippian church helped him out. And so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. But even more forcefully, he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, that he had the right to be paid. And he had the right to be paid by the Corinthians. But he refused to make use of that right. This is what he says. Nevertheless, we, meaning the apostles, have not made use of this right. For we would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Nehemiah also, in a similar way, refused to use his right as governor. Rather, he endured hardship so as not to overburden the people. Verse 18 of our text. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food. And all this is the fact that uh, he had a lot of people he had to feed. And he says, I made sure the 150 people who were eating with me and so so on. Um, He says, I paid for it out of my own pocket. Verse 18, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was, he goes on to list the food, but then he says at the end of that verse, yet for all this, I never once demanded the food allowance of the governor. Why? Because the service was too heavy for the people. If you were here last time, we talked about Thomas Boylston, who was a merchant in Boston during the time of the American Revolution. And we said what was going on in Israel was similar to Stuff that Boylston was doing where during the winter when it was really hard to get warm clothes for the soldiers, uh, here this, uh, this colonist uh, increased prices sometimes a thousand percent. He hiked the prices uh, because he was greedy for gain. And so his own uh, compatriots, his own side could not afford to buy clothes in the winter. Many of them uh, uh, suffered hypothermia, died or had to get legs amputated because they were not able to afford these increased prices. Well, what's described for us now is much like another story during that same time, and this is the story of Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette was one of the, if not the, richest uh, men in France at this time, and yet uh, he decided in 1774 to come to the New World voluntarily leaving behind all of his luxury and wealth and, and comfortability back in France because he was so inspired by the American cause. And Congress was a little suspicious of this because there had been other people who came from other countries and said, we want to help fight. Wow, that's great. And then they say, and here's our uh, fee. This is what we're going to charge you. But Lafayette said, I want to help fight regardless of pay or rank. That really impressed people. Eventually, he did become a general serving alongside in the colonial army, uh, alongside George Washington. And during the harsh winter that that Washington and he and their soldiers endured at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, Lafayette bought the clothes that his soldiers couldn't afford with his own money. He ate what they ate, and he ate it when they ate it. He slept where they slept. He, He realized that he could not lead well if he did not get down on the same level as his people as his soldiers, if he didn't suffer along with them. And Nehemiah is practicing those same principles of generosity here. So Nehemiah's leadership is marked first by generosity. Notice, secondly, that his leadership was unique. It's generous, and then it's unique. He's the only governor who ever served this way. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 of our text. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, 
and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. That's what he could have taxed them. Nehemiah could have. And then he says, even their servants lorded it over the people, the servants of the governors. But I did not do so. So before Nehemiah, the governor's, uh, the governorship uh, was an instrument of economic torture upon the people. And Nehemiah understood, as with all best leaders, that positions of authority are for the purpose of service. If you want to be a good leader, you serve. Uh, that's what we want in the church, isn't it? We want our deacons and our elders and our pastors to be not just leaders, servant leaders. That's what we are after. It's what the Bible is after. First Peter 5. Elders are to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. A servant leaders lead like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know how many of you tuned in uh, to the coronation um, yesterday or watched it on YouTube afterwards. I, that's what I did. I watched some of the highlights on YouTube, and I was so struck by the very first thing that came out of the mouth of King Charles III. So if you watch that, there's this great processional, comes down to George Herbert Perry's the, uh, um, the great anthem, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And that's like 12 minutes. I mean, it takes forever for these people just to walk into the church. But finally, he gets up onto the dais and he sits down and a little boy comes up to him. It's the first thing that happens. And the boy says uh, to uh, the new king, Your majesty, as children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the king of kings. To which Charles replies, In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. That's what I thought too. Yeah, right. It's fascinating, though. That, I mean, this is a liturgy that's been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's the first thing that the king says. And I think perhaps in uh, uh, bygone years, uh, kings uh, and queens meant that more than perhaps um, at other times. It's hard to imagine what that means. I came not to be served, but to serve when... It's a three-hour ceremony where everybody's kissing the ring on your finger and everything else. But it's still fascinating that they recognize this has to be the start of good leadership. Is that you say it's all about service. And so that's what we saw yesterday. It's what we see with Nehemiah. His leadership is generous. It's unique. It's focused. That's the third and final thing we see of his leadership. Verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Now, the word translated persevered means to make strong. And 
the way the form that it comes in the Hebrew really means to make oneself strong. And so what Nehemiah is saying is, I made myself strong in this work. This work which is, which is hard and which is depleting of my energies. It's scary. It's daunting. It's grueling work. I mean, they've got, they've got people trying to kill them while they're building the wall. And yet he made himself strong in it. He didn't give up. He didn't burn out. He persevered in it. He was determined. Similarly, it says he didn't take any land for himself, though he would have been entitled to do so. Now, while, again, that highlights the generosity of Nehemiah, I want to say it highlights his focused purpose. Because he's saying, I'm not going to Jerusalem to, to spruce up a summer home. I'm going there with a mission, and my mission is to build a wall. That's why he and his entourage came from Susa. All my servants were gathered there for the work. He was focused on his task. Nothing could deter him. And I wonder if you're starting to see... Something of the leadership of Christ prefigured for us in Nehemiah. We've seen the leadership of Nehemiah, now the leadership of Jesus. Christ, too, Christ also was focused. He was focused. He came to earth with a singular mission. And it wasn't to build a wall. It was to tear down a wall. That wall that stands between Jew and Gentile, between sinner and God. This, he comes and this is his work, and it requires nothing less than his whole life and death. Nehemiah gave 12 good years as governor. Jesus gave his whole life, and then he died for it. Ephesians 2, Paul writes in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us to God through the cross, thereby killing hostility. He was focused. He knew that to kill hostility, he would have to be killed. Now, who of us could have, could have been um, uh, steadfast in that work? us would not have been deterred could we have stayed the course could we have stayed faithful and focused and christ was even though it meant a cross he persisted because he knew it also meant a crown it meant glory it meant redemption it meant reconciliation it meant peace between god and man therefore it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of god and so Christ was unique in that way, wasn't he? We saw Nehemiah was unique. Christ is unique. He's unique in the entirety of his ministry. You remember, he casts out demons. And the crowds say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. He makes a, a layman stand up and walk again. And what do the crowds say? It says, they are amazed, for we've never seen anything like this. He's a unique leader and Lord. He does not punish or overrun the weakest in his kingdom, but he builds them up and he saves them. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's a unique savior. He's the only savior, isn't he? You see, the uniqueness of Jesus demands the exclusivity of Jesus. It's because he alone leads in this way and loves in this way and serves in this way and saves in this way that we're told in Acts there is salvation in no one else 
For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the one. He's the only. And of course, Christ's leadership is marked by generosity. We've spoken of the rights that Nehemiah forsook to serve his people. Well, how about Jesus? Did he have any rights that he did not put to use? Yes. Yes, he had the rights not of a governor sent by the Persian king, but of the heavenly crowned prince sent by his eternal father. And yet, though he was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. He could have come to earth and demanded that we all bow down to him. Instead, he washed our feet. Instead, he associated with our shame. He took on our sin. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why should he die on a cross? That's a criminal's death. That's a sinner's death because that's what he became for us. He never gave up any of his divine might. He is always fully God, but he did give up his divine right. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and to rescue him, to kill those soldiers who were trying to execute him, the Jewish mobs that were trying to execute him. That was his right. And yet, he forsook that right for our salvation. Lafayette might have been the richest man in France. Jesus is the richest man in the universe. Riches are his. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth. And he, the one to whom belong all riches and power and glory and wealth, he willingly descended into the greatest poverty that any being has ever or will ever experience. Now, if you're wondering, uh, how is it that Christ could go to such great lengths? I want you to see that he was motivated by the very same things that Nehemiah was motivated by in, in our passage. And they're the same things that must motivate us as well. If we want to be sacrificial, generous, and faithful in our various callings. That Nehemiah is called to a difficult thing, and yet he responds in such a faithful way. The same, obviously, is true of Christ, and yet even more so. Well, we're called to difficult things in life. How can we be faithful? How can we be sacrificial, generous? Well, did you notice, I wonder, the twofold motivation that Nehemiah himself tells us, gives us, in this text for why he does what he does? There's two. The first is in verse 15, and it's the most important. And that is the fear of God. Let's look at verse 15 again. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. And even their servants lorded it over the people. Nehemiah is saying, this is just what people did. This is what's expected. But then he says, but I did not do so. Why not, Nehemiah? Because of the fear of God. The line from Proverbs is so well known and often quoted, I think we forget how true and significant it really is. The fear of the Lord truly, really is the beginning of all wisdom. 
We see Nehemiah's wisdom here, and it's because he first feared God. Nehemiah rules well because he rules Coram Deo, before God. And the same is true for Christ, who came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And if you want to know what it takes to do some of the hard stuff that we see Nehemiah doing, or if you want to know what it takes to start living like Christ in some of the hardest of situations to which you will be called, don't overcomplicate things. Start here. Start with the fear of God. Have an eye to God in all things. Have a, have a vision and a view and a pursuit of his glory in all things. Seek to serve him before you serve anybody else. And by the way, that makes sense of the very final verse of our chapter. Look there with me. Maybe that verse seemed odd to you. Verse 19 this prayer thrown up by Nehemiah, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. How does that language strike you? Does it sound a little self-congratulatory? Right? I think at first blush it kind of sounds like this. Nehemiah looking out for number one. Don't forget all that I did, God, and I better, I better see you know, some blessings coming my way because of it. But it's actually the exact opposite. His prayer is an acknowledgement and an open profession of faith uh, or confession of faith that what he has done, he has done for God's sake and not his own. What, what he's saying is that he's living before God's face. It's not about him being rewarded. It's about God being glorified. This is what he's saying. He's saying, God, this has been my aim to serve these people for your sake. This has been my mission, and it's imperfect, I know, oh God, but your blessing can turn my weak efforts into something that actually benefits and helps your people. He has God in view because he fears him. So, dear Christian, fear God, love him first, and you will be motivated to do things that you could never do in your own strength. That's the first motivation. I said there are two. Did you notice what the second one is? And we'll end with this. It's just one motivation uh, left. We've seen the fear of God. But the second is the love for the people. Fear of God is number one. Number two is the love for the people. Uh, We've seen already how Nehemiah was moved by their plight to not tax them or to take from them. And I want to say that he sees them for who they really are and what they're really going through. And the same is true of Christ. Why are we saved? It's because Jesus sees us for who we really are and for what we're really going through. He sees that we're sinners and we need saving. We aren't saved because he thought we're pretty great and we deserve it. It's actually the exact opposite. He saw us as sufferers. And so he comes to our aid. Nehemiah saw the people as sufferers and that moved him to compassion, to love. That's what we need to do with our fellow brothers and sisters, right? To, to see them for who they really are. And then to love them because who are they? They're no different than us. They're suffering. We need to be compassionate. This is how Jesus viewed us, friends. Once you get that, you'll start to view other people the same way. Charles Spurgeon has a great little uh, section where it's actually in a sermon on First Timothy 1.15 where Paul writes... Um, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And, and he says, you know, that, that just kind of, we have a hard time rationalizing that. It would make more sense if it said Christ Jesus came in the world to condemn sinners. 
That makes more sense. So how can he possibly say he's saving sinners? And Spurgeon says one of the first things we want to do is redefine sinner. He came to the world to save, well, maybe it's the best sinners that are out there. Um, Let me read you from Spurgeon. This is what he says. That he should see man to be evil and only evil and yet still visit him in mercy seems hard for the carnal heart to believe. Therefore, lest we should be misunderstood, let's lay down this straight line. He says, let's underscore this, that Christ did not come into the world to save anybody but sinners, and he viewed those sinners as sinners and nothing more. He did not view them as repenting sinners, or nor as believing sinners, nor as humble sinners, nor as sanctified sinners, nor anything else but sinners. And under that character... He contemplated their salvation. He saw them for who they really are. He sees you and me for who we really are. Not sinners who are doing our best. No, just sinners. And what do sinners need more than anything else? We need to be saved. And so he's moved in love and pity. And told us time and time again, this is why he came, Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or John 10, 10. I came that they may have, may have life and have it abundantly. In John 12, he says that he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus sees us for what we really are and what we're going through. And so we need to have the humility to see others the same way. Every single person in this room is suffering. Every single person in your household is suffering in some way, at your workplace, at your school, at the grocery store. Everybody is suffering. They suffer on account of their own sins that they commit foolishly. They suffer the effects of other sins committed against them or the effects of those sins Everybody around you needs the same thing, grace. We can easily villainize people. They belong to that group over there. They're one of those types. Or we can um, give no thought to what somebody might be going through, and therefore we can excuse withholding kindness, generosity. Nehemiah didn't do that to the people in Israel. He saw the people for who they really were, for what they were really going through, and he opened his heart to them in love. Christ has done the same for you today. If you're a Christian, he's done that. You've received his love. If you're not a Christian today, I want you to know his arms are open wide, and he's saying, come to me and find that rest that you need because I know you're suffering. I know what you're going through. And Christ does that because of this twofold motivation. He comes to do the will of his Father. The will of the Father is that he would not lose any that had been given into his charge. And so because he's obeying the Father, he says, really, I mean it. I love you. When I say I'm for you, I'm not lying. When I say I'll never cast you out, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. This is that twofold motivation, fear of God and love of brothers. It's, it's the two great commandments. Nehemiah says it in sort of his brusque way. I didn't do anything like that because I feared God. I didn't exact taxes because the burden on the people. But what he's really saying is I kept those two great commandments. And it changed everything for those people. Well, brothers and sisters, when you realize Christ kept those two great commandments for you, well, then in thankful obedience, you're going to start keeping those two great commandments for the benefit of those people that God places you before. So it seems like a tough task, right? 
to be as generous and kind and sacrificial and self-denying as Nehemiah was. But you can do it when the Spirit of God works in you, that motivation to fear God and to love his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good governor, Nehemiah, and the way in which he points us to Jesus Christ, the greater governor. We thank you that he is the the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, and he always deals with us so kindly. He knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but he's generous, and he is uniquely generous exclusively generous in giving his life so that we would not have to die. Father, would you increase our faith and our love and our adoration for this wonderful Savior? And might we go from this place inspired to live like him for the sake of your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.